Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. The Book of the Black Tower, Volume 1. Copyright Nick Bastin. Following his unexpected victory at the Battle of Culloden, Prince Charles Edward Stuart became King of the Gales and split the Highlands and Islands of Scotland from the rest of Britain. Upon his death, the Free Republic of the Gales was declared. Since then, the Gallic Republic has maintained its own culture and language, ploughing its idiosyncratic furrow to the present day, a constant irritant to its larger and more powerful neighbour. Prologue 11.30am, 16th of April, 1746. Culloden Moor, Scotland. The bloody evidence of disaster was growing all around him. The shouts and war cries had turned to screams and moans, the crump of cannon and whip-crack of musketry to the clang and ring of steel. Though the smoke and rain hid much of what was happening at the enemy line, he could see enough to know that Lochiel and the right wing were in trouble. Momentum was ebbing. On the left, the Macdonalds had started their charge, but had been slow off the mark. With further to run, they were not going to reach the enemy in time to make a difference. The featureless moor that stretched before him, soaked by the rain and ploughed by the cannonballs, was now being churned into a foot-sucking mire. The rain stung, its cold drops joining the hot tears of shame and rage that trickled down his face. Why had he agreed to fight the battle here? This godforsaken moor, it was too flat, too exposed, and his poor men were too exhausted. It was asking too much. Cumberland must have double his numbers, not to mention those damned cannons. All his bickering advisers with their tactics, stratagems and maps and plans, look where they'd left him. After all they'd been through, all they'd fought for, was it really going to end here? O'Shea galloped over, his horse wild-eyed and streaming with sweat and blood. Your Highness, you must leave, he shouted. The day is lost, you must save yourself. There is nothing more to be done here. His face was urgent, eyes shining white through a mask of black powder and mud. His own horse shied at the distress of O'Shea's mount, and he pulled the reins tight to hold it still. Where the hell is Murray? Damn Murray! There's no time, O'Shea pleaded. You must escape now or all will be lost. It's lost anyway, you fool. Can't you see that? He'd had enough of running. He'd run all the way from Derby, chased relentlessly by that bastard Cumberland. The long-promised welcome from the supposedly loyal English Jacobites had never come. The very same cowards that for decades had been toasting his father and grandfather as the rightful kings over the water had turned away. They had abandoned him. But his poor loyal gales had tramped the length of the kingdom far from their homes, fighting and winning. They had trusted him, fought and died for him, after all they had achieved in his name, in the name of his father, in the name of the true religion and of freedom, they were now being butchered. They deserved better. Had he not chanced at all on the turn of a card when he had landed at Glenshiel those few short months ago? They had said he was mad, a fool, but hadn't he proved them wrong time and again? Was he now going to save himself and leave his men to die? Get me Macdonald and Elko, bring all our horse to me now. He waved off O'Shea's entreaties, primed his pistols and pulled a telescope from his saddlebag. He swept the enemy line, choosing his target with care. As soon as the tattered collection of cavalry arrived, and without waiting for further discussion, he dug his spurs deep into his mount's side, 
driving it towards the distant red line. As he left the relative safety of the, sh- of the rear, the air grew thick with smoke and the whine of musket balls. Fortunately, the smoke was thickest where they were crossing, and they'd already covered most of the open ground before the enemy realised they were in earnest. His lifeguards were on either side, few there they were, faces grim and set, brave lads. O'Shea to his right was leading the Fitzjames, and Elko to his left brandished his sabre as if it alone could ward off the ball and grate that sang around them. The damned moor seemed to go on forever, but at last the smoke parted, and they burst upon the red wall. He hacked to left and right, cleaving, hewing, slashing, through and through he pressed onward. Nothing existed beyond the point of his sword over his horse's ears. He laughed at the freedom of it, the red-soaked joy of it, the revenge for the failure, the indignity and shame. Suddenly he could see Cumberland sitting like a fat toad surrounded by lace-fretted lords and lackeys. The crowd around him was thick, too thick, surely. Could they cut their way through after what they had just endured? But this was the moment he could not stop now. Sheathing his sword, he pulled a pistol from his saddle and brandished it at his remaining cavalry who cocked their weapons in response. Together they rode hard at the press of troops around Cumberland, loosing a desultory volley before urging their exhausted mounts into the enemy. It was as if the hand of God directed that ball, shepherding it through the heaving horse flesh and waving arms, guiding it to its destination between the eyes and ears of Cumberland's mount, leaving a perfect puckered hole at the top of its white blaze. The horse dropped like a dead weight, taking its rider down with it. As Cumberland disappeared from view, his entourage, which had seemed so impenetrable, scattered like chaff in the wind. A roar went up behind him. As the redcoats turned to see their leader fall, their courage wavered. Their resolve, so firm until now, teetered in the balance. By contrast, the spirit of the Highland army was redoubled. Scenting their opponent's doubt and fear, the remainder of his force charged across the moor. Seeing Cumberland pinned beneath his fallen horse, struggling to wriggle free, he dismounted. As one prince to another, he reached out to help pull his enemy from under the horse, resisting the urge to shoot him there and then. But Cumberland fumbled with his saddlebow and produced a pistol. Its round black hole filled his vision. How could it end like this? After everything? Surely this wasn't God's plan. A flash of light shone out. He closed his eyes, waiting for the impact in the darkness to swallow him. A scream pierced the air. Not his. Opening his eyes, he saw Cumberland staring at the bloody stump where his treacherous right hand had been. His mouth twisted in pain, his jowls and chins rolling and shaking. A bloodied and battered Highlander stood over him, sword drawn and dripping with blood. The joy of salvation filled him from boots to brow, but with it came a wild anger. Grabbing his sword, he fell on Cumberland, swatting aside his entreaties. Moments later, he held his enemy's fat and lifeless head above his own for all to see, the streaks of gore running hot and thick down his face, mingling with the rain and the sweat. The roar from his men swept the field, consuming all opposition and dissolving the resistance of the redcoat into the mud and sleet. One, the straight. The pain was sharp and pointed, as if someone was trying to excavate their way out of his forehead from the inside with an ice pick. The blows chipped away frenetically, gradually slowing until they aligned with his pulse. It was pitch black, 
He was soaking wet, lying on his back in freezing water. He tried lifting his head. Nothing. Just darkness. Fuck. Ah, uh, what's going on? Where am I? What are you doing? Ah, oh, fuck, my head. Gillespie groaned, squeezing his temples, hoping to release some of the pain that was gouging behind his eyes. He breathed in a lungful of salty air. They were at sea. He tried to push himself up. An unseen hand gently but firmly pushed him back down. A hard-edged whisper reached him through the darkness. We're in the strait. Don't move or make a sound. He was lying in the bottom of some sort of boat, surrounded by feet and calves. There was a good inch of seawater down there with him, and it lapped around his head as the boat climbed and slid down each wave of the moderate swell. The only sounds were the slap of water on the hull and the very faint thrum of their engine. They were barely moving. Gillespie swallowed, closing his eyes again after the pain in his head which promptly erupted in starbursts. A flurry of whispers flew round the gunwales. A woman, Bridge, leant down and with her lips practically pressed to his ear, muttered apologetically, I'm sorry, we knew you'd be reluctant, but it was important you came with us. Once we've had the choosing, you'll be free to go. I'll even bring you back myself, but you must be quiet until we're in safer waters. If we are spotted, well, you know what will happen. She spoke in the old tongue, hardly surprising if his cousin Duncan had sent them from the Republic. Thanks to the many painful lessons of his youth, he could understand her, but it was an effort, as the cogs of his brain ground slow through the throbbing of his pulse. He lifted his head out of the bilge water. As his eyes adjusted, he saw the very faint glow of the boat's binnacle, its feeble illumination giving a green radiance to Ninian's face at the helm. He could just make out the shadowy figures of this motley companions hunched on the rubber tyres of the, each gunwale. With a hand on a grab rope and the other holding a weapon, their dull clunks an unsettling reminder that they were heavily armed. He struggled to remember the names of the others. There were the two redheads, one short but stocky, powerfully built with a barrel chest and bulging arms, the other with a fierce face and a peat spade of a beard. Then there was the one called Ian the Rat, with his memorably pointed face, as pale as milk. He looked like he'd been pulled teeth first down a funnel, the tarry yellow incisors leading, his nose and cheekbones scurrying behind. There was Ninian, Nin, who was now on the helm, Gillespie could still feel the firm grip of his handshake and the power of his cornflower blue eyes. And Kirsty, their leader. His brain churned. Was he going to die out here? Drowned or gunned down for the crime of being abducted by this bunch of Catarans? Given all those Gallic smugglers sunk or impounded that he read about in the Antrim Gazette, it seemed a certainty. Gillespie had never even been to the Gallic Republic, and the very thought of visiting it gave any right-minded person pause. He began to shake. Whether from cold or fear, he wasn't entirely sure. He tried to focus, to calm himself, to think. A slow-moving boat, this small and low-lying, surely wouldn't show up on radar. If they'd made it over the strait in one piece, then surely they must be able to return. The boat was moving incredibly slowly, barely outpacing the slip and slide of the waves. Over their heads, the quiet crinkle of a low-foil awning helped to explain why it was so dark. Through a peephole at the front, he could just see patches of moonlight rolling on the swell and the dark line of the horizon. 
He thought back to the news they had brought, that his distant cousin Duncan was dying, that his two sons, Callum and Oshan, were already dead. Callum must be an old man, but Callum and Oshan, they were his age, far too young to be dead and buried. What time is it? His lips were parched and cracked from the seawater. His head throbbed from whatever it was they had drugged him with, the sweet chemical wave that had burst upon his senses, drowning them in utter blackness. 3.30, Bridge replied. We've been out here since shortly after one. We're nearly at the border. Once across, we can get some speed on. His mind did a few quick calculations. Two and a half hours at a couple of knots meant that they were probably not far off the maritime boundary. While the boundary was not much respected, the closer they were to the Republic's shore, the safer they would be, at least from the kingdom, although not necessarily from the locals. As this thought dissipated into the thudding of his temples, he could hear a new sound, the far-off thrum of another engine. Shite, can you hear that, Ninian said from the stern. The bastards are sailing up the line. They're going to spot us for sure. Hold your nerve, we'll be able to outrun them even if they do. Another voice, Jamie, growled. With luck, they won't see us. Gillespie's spirit soared. If only he could attract the attention of this approaching boat, then they could save him. Should he shout? Could he grab one of the guns? He tried to be calm, to wait for the right moment. The tension in the boat rose as the other engine came closer. The voices of her crew carrying over the water. They were almost upon them. Has someone got the 50 cal ready? Kirsty whispered. I can't see shit in here. Aye. Either locked and loaded came a steadfast voice from the bow. The other engine note changed, as if it was heading towards them. It was now or never. Gillespie pushed himself upwards, scrabbling and tearing at the foil above his head and shouting at the top of his voice. Almost as soon as he had risen from the deck, arms were wrestling him back down from all sides, pinning him to the bottom of the boat. A rough hand was clamped over his mouth and he felt the flat of a sharp-edged blade press into his cheek. If you do that again, I will cut your throat, came a hard whisper in his ear. If you even fucking move an inch. He lay still, waiting to see if he had been successful. Had the boat heard him? Everyone's ears and eyes strained, muscles and sinews, nerves tensed, ready to explode into action. Malcolm, who was lying across the bow with a large object in his hands, turned back to look at Ninian at the stern. Think we're about to get fucked. I vote we light them up first and then fire up the afterburners to get us the hell out of here. We should be faster and the confusion will give us an edge. Ninian nodded through the gloom. Okay, on the count of three, and for fuck's sake, hold on. We're not stopping to pick up any swimmers. One, two, three. Malcolm tore back the foil awning. They could see the boat now, an inshore patrol boat. It was so close that it was a miracle that they had not been spotted before. At that instant, Malcolm let rip with the 50 caliber machine gun, its barrel spitting a jet of flame into the night, a hail of empty cartridge cases pouring over Gillespie and the other occupants of the boat. Malcolm's burst stitched the side of the hull before erupting into the wheelhouse, splashing red up the shattering windows. Screams and shouts pierced the night. Nin gunned the engine, the boat springing to life in his hand, skimming across the swell, throwing a cloud of salt spray each time it kissed off the top of one wave before thumping down onto the next. Malcolm's aim became more erratic as their speed increased. 
but he continued to pour fire into the patrol boat until it was out of range astern. A flare arced into the sky and began a slow descent. Illuminating the sea with its burning phosphorus, the patrol boat's crew were getting their act together. Now a tracer from their bow gun began to puncture the dark around them, throwing up great spouts of water as the bolts of light flashed ever closer. Gillespie was mesmerised and terrified. Just as their march onto the boat seemed inexorable, Nin threw over the helm, turning sharply to port. Picking up even more speed, he started to weave, making for the distant shore. Looking up, Gillespie saw that Jamie had a rifle in his hand and that he was leaning on the rat's shoulder, aiming back at the patrol boat. The rat grimaced as the barrel bit into him every time the boat crested a wave, but said nothing. Jamie was focused, staring down the sight, held around the waist by Kirsty to stop him being flung out of the boat. As the boat cleared a big wave, he pulled the trigger, emitting a grunt of satisfaction as the patrol boat's gun fell silent. The sea spray soaked them as the knots accelerated. They were pulling away. Nin did not pause or slow down, keeping the boat flat out for the Republic shore. From the bottom of the boat, Gillespie was beginning to think that they had escaped, that they'd shown a clean pair of heels, when the bow erupted in a sheet of flame and Malcolm exploded in a cloud of blood and brains. Raptor, Kirsty shouted, her index finger tracking the drone that passed metres above them. Fuck, 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 sake, Nin, working the helm, tried to wrong-foot the pursuer. The raptor turned, started to turn, returning for another pass. Breed lunged between Gillespie's legs, clawing desperately with one hand to free the clasp on a small box that was bolted between his feet, while holding onto the grab rope for dear life with the other. Each wave was trying to buck her out of the boat, wrenching her grip on the horsehaw, but she couldn't grip the clasp to work it free. Without thinking, but driven by the desperate look on her face, Gillespie stretched his left arm as far as he could reach and was just able to grip the small metal bolt and pull it open. Breed grabbed for the small tennis ball-shaped object inside. Bring it to her lips, she gripped the ring that hung from its side with her teeth and pulled it out. Rolling backwards over Gillespie, she tracked the pursuing drone, timing her throw perfectly as it swooped overhead. The ball rose into the air and then shattered with a pulse of invisible energy. The shockwave pummeled the boat and shook the occupants violently. Gillespie grasped, gasped as the air was jolted from his lungs and his ears rang like a bell. The drone stopped dead in the sky as if it had run into a wall before dropping like a stone into the black waves below. Let's just hope they don't have another one of those, Nin muttered as he slalomed the boat towards the rapidly approaching shore. <laughs>